Book Five, Chapter One of Clara Vaughan, Volume Three. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Clara Vaughan, Volume Three, by R. D. Blackmore. Book Five, Chapter One. At this time and place, I, Clara Vaughan, leap from the pillion of my uncle's pensive mule, and am upon the curbstone of my own strange life again. How I wandered with him through the olive groves of Corsica! How I wept for his loving lily, that ancient seigneur, and the stolen babes! And how, beyond the vomito of words, I loathed that fiend who had injured whom or what most I know not, unless it were his own soul, if he had any, and for God's sake I hope he had. All this, though I am too weak of language, will perhaps be understood. To myself I would hardly confess the interest I could not discard in the pure and constant love of that impassioned pair. For what had I any longer to do with Pyramus and Thisbe? No more of love for me. You will not see me droop and fret and turn to a mossy green. No nonsense of that sort for me. I have a loop at either side, entitled self-respect, which will keep my skirt from draggling. Neither will I rush into the opposite extreme, pronounce all love a bubble, because my own has burst, take to low-necked dresses, and admire cats more than babies. No. I am only eighteen, not yet eighteen and a half. I have loved with all my heart, and a free true heart it is, albeit a hot and haughty one. If it be despised, outraged, and made nothing of, though I can never transfer, I will not turn it sour. The world is every whit as fair, children are quite as pretty, Flowers have as rich a scent, and goodness as pure a charm, as if that silly maiden Clara had not leaped before she looked. And yet, how I wish that I could only think so! Before I go on with my tale, I must recur to one or two little matters, that everything may be as clear as it lies in my power to make it. For although I am but a female, as Inspector Cutting observed, I am doing my best to make everything as clear as if told by a male. In the first place, then, when my uncle had recovered from the exertion of telling his tale, I acquainted him with my discovery of the letters upon the bed-hangings. They confirmed his account of the fearful vendetta usages, and explained the point which had been to him most mysterious. Secondly, as to the anonymous letter which had led me first to London. Like the detective policeman, he now attached but little importance to it. He had done his best at the time to trace the writer and follow the clue, if there were any. But he had met with no success. His reason for passing it on to me was that he hoped to create some diversion of my thought, some break in the clouds of my sorrow. Next, to show the full meaning of Mrs. Daldy's manoeuvres. Through her connection, 
which she had carefully cultivated when it began to seem worth her while, with her husband's kindred near Genoa, she had learned some portions of my poor uncle's history. For, as he himself observed, the islanders are much addicted to gossip, as indeed all islanders are, and continentals too, for that matter, especially in hot climates. Now there is no lack of intercourse between the Bologna and Genoa. Of course, our chastened hypocrite made the most of her knowledge, and in a hundred ways, and by her sham sympathy and pretended aid, for up to the time of his illness the desolate father still sought and sought, she even secured some little influence over her brother-in-law. How often is it so? Though we know people to be false, we do not believe when our hearts are concerned that they are so false to us. Moreover, when she found him shattered in body and mind by paralysis, she commenced an active bombardment, pulling out the tampions from every gun of mock religion. But as in her treatment of me, she displayed, in spite of all her experience and trials, a sad ignorance of unregenerate human nature. My uncle was not the man, palsied or no, to be terrified by a Calvinist and he knew too much of her early days and certain doings at Baden to identify her at present with the angel that stands in the sun. And this prison-eyed mole made another mistake. Not content with one good gallery, she must needs work two runs side by side in a very mealy soil. The result was, of course, that they ran into one, and she had to dig her way out. If she had worked heart and soul for my uncle's money only, which he rightly regarded as his own, and at his own disposal, I believe she might have got most of it. At any rate, under the will which I caught her carrying off, she was to take half the large sum which he had laid by. I mean, if his children did not come to light and prove their legitimacy. But twenty-five thousand pounds would be nothing to her dear son, who had inherited his father's extravagance, or to herself, who loved high play. Therefore, believing me out of the field, she began to plot for the Vaughan estate as well, and furthermore for the magnificent property in Corsica. Of the Vaughan estates she had no chance, albeit she had the impudence to propose a compromise with me. Of Veduta Tower she had some prospect, if the right heirs, the poor children, should never appear or establish their claim, and if she could procure the outlawry of Lepardo. Believing my uncle to be dying by inches, she made a bold stroke for possession of the most important documents, and but for judice and me, no doubt she would have succeeded. But she had dashed far out of her depth and had little chance now of reaching the coveted land. I hope she felt that everything was ordered for her good. Another point which seems to require some explanation is the discovery by the assassin of the secret entrance, an access quite unknown to the family, the servants, or any other person, except at a later time Mrs. Daldy. The house, as I said before, was built upon the site and partly embodied the fabric of a still more ancient structure. 
Probably these narrow stairs, now enclosed in the basement of the eastern wall, had saved many a ripe priest from reeling in the time of the Plantagenets. They led, I think, from the ancient chapel, long since destroyed, to the chaplain's room, and perhaps had been reopened secretly during the Great Rebellion, when the Vaughans were in hot trouble. Beatrice Vaughan, the cavalier's child, who was now supposed to begin her ghost-walk at the eastern window, glided probably down this staircase, when, as the legend relates, she escaped mysteriously from the house in her father's absence, roused the tenants, and surprised the roundhead garrison in their beds. The house was soon retaken, and Beatrice in her youthful beauty given up to the brutal soldiers. She snapped a pistol at the Puritan officer, and flew like a bird along this corridor. At the end, while trying perhaps to draw the old oak slide, though nothing was said of this, she was caught by the gloating fanatics, and stabbed herself on the spot rather than yield to dishonour. The poor maiden's tomb is in the church, not far from the chancel arch, with some lines of quaint Latin upon it. Her lover, Sir William Desborough, slit that Puritan officer's nose and cut off both his ears. I wonder that he let him off so lightly, but perhaps it was all he was worth. Major Cecil Vaughan married again, and the direct line was re-established. The chapel well, as it was called, dark and overhung with ivy, was a spring of limpid icy crystal, spanned by and forming a deep alcove in the ancient chapel wall, which partly for its sake, and partly as a buttress for the east end of the house, had been left still standing. This old well had long time been disused, hiding as it did in a wild and neglected corner out of sight from the terrace walk, and the gardeners, who found the pump less troublesome, had condemned the water as too cold for their plants. The mouth, with its tangled veil of ivy and periwinkle, was also masked by a pile of the chapel ruins, now dignified with the name of a rockwork. Some steps of jagged stone led through the low black archway to the crouching water, which was so clear that it seemed to doubt which was itself and which was stone. This peaceful, cold, unruffled well formed the antechamber to the murderous passage, for on the right-hand side, not to be seen in the darkness and the sublustrous confusion by any common eye, was a small niche and footing-place not a yard above the water. It needed some nerve and vigour to spring from the lowest stepping-stone sideways to this scarcely visible ledge. None of the few whose eyes were good enough to espy it would be tempted to hazard the leap, unless they knew, or suspected, that the facing would yield to the foot. That it was, in fact, a small door, purposely coloured and jointed, like the slimy green of the masonry. In this well the murderer must have lurked, and he might have done so from one year's end to another. There, with the craft of his devilish race, my uncle may admire them, but not I, and with their wonderful powers of sight, he must have found this entrance, and rejoiced in his hellish heart. As for Mrs. Daldy, she found it out at the other end, most likely. Unless my memory fails me, 
I spoke long ago of some boards which sounded hollow to the ring of my childish knuckles. These were in the skirting, if that be the proper name for it, under the centre of the great oriel window. The oak slides, when pressed from below, ran in a groove with but little noise and without much force being used. But it required some strength to move them on the side of the corridor. It was the sound of these sliding boards which had first drawn Judy's notice. But as they were in deep shadow, I neither perceived the opening nor gave him the opportunity. That woman would never have dreamed of the thing if she had not surprised me one day when I was prying about there. She must have returned alone, and being, as we have seen, a superior cabinet-maker, discovered the secret which baffled me. As I did not want Judy to catch cold by watching there any longer, I had this horrible passage walled up at either end and built across in the middle. Having thus made good my arrears, I am at liberty to proceed. When my uncle had paused from his many sorrows, which he did with a mellow dignity, not yet understood by me, and when I, in the fervour of youth, had offered much comfort, kindly received, but far better let alone, I asked him for one thing only, the most minute and accurate description he could give of that Lipado della Croce. His answer was as follows. My dear, I have seen him once only, and that more than twenty years ago, and in an interview of some excitement. I should think so, indeed, when one tried to kill the other. But I will describe him to the best of my recollection. He is rather a tall man, at least of about my own height, but more lightly built than myself. His hands and feet are remarkably small and elegant. His face is of the true Italian type, a keen oval with a straight nose, and plenty of width between the eyes, which are large and very dark. His forehead is not massive, but well formed and much whiter than the rest of his face. The expression of his countenance is that of shrewdness and versatility, with a quickness eager to save both you and himself from the trouble of completing your sentence. But all this is common enough. One thing I saw, or fancied, which is not quite so common. As I dealt him that blow with my fist, my eyes for one flash met his, and his leaped towards one another as if he had a strong cast in them. Before that, and afterwards too, there was no appearance of any distortion. If there were any at that moment, it arose from the start of terror or fury jerking the muscles awry. His voice is flexible and persuasive, and soft as a serpent charmer's. I think he must be a most arrogant man, profoundly convinced of his own abilities, but seldom caring to vindicate them. Just the man to get on in the world if he were only what is called respectable. Just the man to break a woman's heart and crush the spirit of a meek and humble child. Oh, I would forgive him his sins against me, though not his wrongs towards you, if I could only learn that he had been kind to my children. This description dwelt on my mind for days and days of thinking, 
it did not altogether apply to the man whom I had observed so closely at the meeting of the conspirators. That man was of middle height, and though his face was oval, there was scarcely the average width between the eyes, and he did not seem to me like an arrogant man, cold except when excited, but rather of a hasty, impassioned nature, sure to do its utmost in trifles. Could it be that I had watched and hated the wrong man? It might be so, and it was not unlikely that Mr. Cutting himself knew not which was the guilty one. Like most of the London policemen—my uncle had taught me this—he was too proud of his sagacity to be, in truth, very sagacious. Experience he had, and all that, but he would not have done in Paris. The real depth that goes below and yet allows for the depth of another must be in the nature, can rarely exist in a small one, and in a large one is seldom worked but for theoretical purposes. Therefore, shallow men overreach in daily life, and fancy they have blinded those who know them thoroughly and know themselves as well. So far as my experience goes, large-natured men abhor cunning so much that they fear to work the depth of their own intelligence because it seems akin to it. So they are cheated every day, as a strong man yields to the push of a child, and the fools who cheat them chuckle in the idea that they have done it by fine sagacity and without the victim's knowledge. End of chapter 1